Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I know I've said this a number of times lately. It is a byproduct of working on a daily podcast, but today's episode has been on my list of to-dos for a really long time, and we're coming up on its 80th anniversary, which moved it up to the top of the list. Kristallnacht, or The Night of the Broken Glass, took place on November 9th and 10th of 1938. And we've mentioned it in some previous episodes about the Holocaust and about World War II, and it has also come up as a listener request. This was a massive act of anti-Semitic violence, and it was named for the shards of glass that were left littering the streets in more than a 1,000 cities and towns in the German Reich. Nazis burned hundreds of synagogues, vandalized and looted thousands of homes and businesses, raped and murdered people, and made about 30,000 arrests, mostly of Jewish men, and those men were then sent to concentration camps. I don't think I've ever given a warning this strong on the show before, but this is just not an episode for young children. We're going to be discussing everything that I just said in a lot more detail. And then in the third part of this episode, after the second ad break, we are going to be discussing a rape investigation that had horrifying elements on his own. Uh, I did want to make one note on language before we start. Over the years, we've gotten a couple of notes from listeners who've told us that they don't prefer the use of the word Jew because it's of its history as an anti-Semitic slur. But then we've also heard from other listeners that avoiding the word Jew has its own baggage because it suggests that there's something wrong with being Jewish or that we're uncomfortable with it. Plus, it means that adherence to all the other religions can be referenced with nouns like Christians and Muslims and Sikhs and Buddhists and Jews are the only ones that are only allowed the adjective of Jewish. So these listeners have encouraged us to use the word Jew. It is really not possible for us to reconcile these two points of view. But I did want to acknowledge that that's a discussion that happens before we get into this episode. And if folks are wondering about the timing of this episode, given the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27th, we scheduled this episode to come out today back in August and it was researched and written before the shooting happened, but it's being recorded in the shooting's immediate aftermath. So to get into the background, we talked a lot about Adolf Hitler's rise to power in our previous episode on the Night of the Long Knives. So we are not going to repeat all of that today. But briefly, in 1933, Germany's president, Paul von Hindenburg, named Hitler as chancellor, hoping to appease the Nazi party as it gained power in the Reichstag, or that's the German parliament. Uh, and then when Paul von Hindenburg died in 1934, Hitler became president as well as chancellor, making him the Fuhrer or supreme ruler of Germany. And a big part of his platform, which was also a big reason for his popularity, was his vocal, vehement anti-Semitism. Jews had been living in what's now Germany for more than a thousand years. And of course, anti-Semitism existed long before Hitler came to power. But it was really after 1933 that Germany started implementing a whole new wave of laws that specifically targeted the Jewish population as part of a process of Aryanization. The Nazi party called for a boycott of Jewish businesses, and by 1935, non-Jewish businesses were announcing that Jews were no longer welcome there as customers. Jews were also barred from holding civil service jobs, and anyone who was already in a position like that was fired. Then, the Reichstag passed the Nuremberg Laws on September 15th of 1935. These included the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor and the Reich Citizenship Law. 
These laws outlined German racial policy, and they were rooted in the idea that Jews and Germans were different, that Jewish blood was inferior to, quote, true German or Aryan blood, and that it was necessary to ban contact between Jews and Germans for the sake of racial purity. On top of preserving the idea of this so-called racial purity, these laws were also meant to ostracize Jews and to speed up the process of forcing them out of German society. Hitler and the Nazi party wanted to make Germany Judenrein, or cleansed of Jews. Although legislators had already started doing research and drafting language for these laws, the final legislation was written over the span of just two days. And this was because Hitler ordered for them to be finalized on September 13th so that he could present them at an annual rally in Nuremberg on the 15th. The Nuremberg Laws banned Jews from holding German citizenship. This stripped them of the rights and protections that German citizens were entitled to under the law, and that it also excluded them from voting and from holding public office. Both sex and marriage between Jews and non-Jews were outlawed, Jews were also banned from employing German women under the age of 45 as maids. The laws didn't define who was and wasn't considered Jewish when it came to marriage. So the Reich Ministry of the Interior issued a supplemental document outlining different rules for peoples whose ancestry was half or quarter Jewish. It detailed which populations were allowed to intermarry, given how much Jewish ancestry they had. Persecution of Jews in the Reich, which had been going on through this whole time, continued to escalate after the passage of the Nuremberg Laws. And a lot of people who had the means to do so left the country. In March of 1938, Germany annexed Austria, which put about 185,000 Austrian Jews under German rule and subject to the Nuremberg Laws. Then on April 11th, 1938, the government further tightened their definition of who was and wasn't Jewish. So-called non-Aryans were defined as anyone who was descended from non-Aryan parents or grandparents. People were required to prove their ancestry through birth certificates and family records. Before Germany annexed Austria, about a quarter of the nation's Jewish population had fled, which had created a refugee crisis in other nations. Most nations had immigration quotas in place, and in many cases, those quotas had already been reached, even before Germany annexed Austria. So after the annexation, other nations were really anxious about the possibility of so many more Jewish refugees. So in July of 1938, a conference was held in Evian, France, to try to seek an international solution to this problem. But the conference was completely unsuccessful. Although most of the delegates expressed sympathy for German and Austrian Jews, none of them offered to actually do anything about it. The Dominican Republic was the only nation that offered to relax its immigration policies to allow more refugees, and Hungary and Poland were both more interested in finding a way to remove their own Jewish populations than in bringing in Jewish refugees. Although there were some individual diplomats and philanthropists and religious and humanitarian organizations who were trying to help, at the national level, virtually no one was willing. After the Evian conference, the Polish government issued a decree that any Poles who had been out of the country for more than five years would have their passports revoked unless they got a stamp from a Polish official before October 31st, 1938. And this prompted Germany to expel its population of Polish Jews back to Poland. Hitler ordered this expulsion, with forced evictions on October 27, 1938. 
Those expelled were allowed to take only one suitcase each, and their belongings left behind were confiscated by the government and in some cases stolen by neighbors. Between 12,000 and 17,000 Jews who had been born in Poland were ordered to leave German territory during this expulsion. But once they got to the border, most of them weren't allowed to cross into Poland. Many of them wound up at a makeshift refugee camp near Spalzin on the Polish border. Because they had been allowed to take only one suitcase each, the people trapped at the border had virtually no food or supplies. They also weren't permitted to take valuables or large amounts of money out of Germany, so those who had brought money with them had it confiscated. Conditions were appalling, and members of the Schutzstaffel, or SS, harassed and beat many of the people who were being forced to relocate. There were reports of suicides as a result of all of this. Included among the people trapped at the border was the family of 17-year-old Herschel Grinspan. The family were Polish, but they'd been living in Germany since the early 19-teens. While the rest of the family had been living in Hanover, Herschel had fled in 1936, first to Belgium and then to France. On November 3rd, he got a postcard from his sister Berta, describing how she and their parents had been forced out of their home and were now trapped at the border with virtually nothing. Her postcard was brief, but the next day, Herschel also read a thorough account in a Jewish newspaper that described the conditions along the border as horrific. Herschel was already desperate when he got this postcard from his sister. After leaving Germany, he had crossed the border from Belgium into France illegally. His repeated attempts to formally seek asylum in France had all been turned down. And in July of 1938, he had been ordered to leave the country. But he had nowhere else to go. His own Polish passport had expired. So for about three months before getting this news from his sister, he had been in hiding, sheltered in a maid's quarters in an attic, and going out only at night. On the morning of November 7th, he wrote a postcard to his father and placed it in his wallet. Written in Hebrew, it said, With God's help, I couldn't do otherwise. My heart bleeds when I think of our tragedy and that of the 12,000 Jews. I have to protest in a way that the whole world hears my protest, and this I intend to do. I beg your forgiveness. Then he bought a gun and five bullets. He went to the German embassy in Paris and was admitted into the building after saying he had an important document to deliver. His plan had been to assassinate the German ambassador, but instead he was directed to the office of Third Secretary Ernst von Rat. Herschel fired all five of his bullets, hitting the secretary twice. Von Rat initially survived and was taken for medical care, and Herschel was taken into custody by French authorities, and he went with them willingly. Retaliation against the Jewish community began immediately, with Jewish newspapers and other publications being shut down on November 8th, and Jewish cultural activities being suspended. On the same day, the announcement came that Jewish children could no longer attend Aryan schools. The shooting was also used as the justification for Kristallnacht, which we will talk about after a quick sponsor break. The shooting of Ernst von Rath took place the day before the 15th anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch. That was a failed attempt to start a violent insurrection against the German government that took place in 1923. The primary instigators of the Beer Hall Putsch were Adolf Hitler and Erich Ludendorff. Both men were arrested and tried, and Ludendorff was acquitted, but Hitler was convicted, and he spent nine months in prison, during which time he wrote most of Mein Kampf. 
Because of the anniversary, Nazi Party leaders were gathered in Munich. Most of them saw an editorial in the Nazi Party's newspaper that described Herschel Grinspan as, quote, a criminal tool of international Jewish murderers. And on the afternoon of the 9th, they also got word that Vom Rath had died of his injuries. This was not the first time that a Jewish person had killed a Nazi official. In 1936, a Jewish student named David Frankfurter assassinated Wilhelm Gustlofen Davos, who was the leader of the Nazi party in Switzerland. But that time, Hitler had forbidden any kind of retaliation for the assassination. That had happened during the lead-up to the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which were facing ongoing protests and threats of boycotts and demands for the games to be canceled or moved somewhere else. So Hitler didn't want to give that movement any more fuel. But things were different in 1938. The Olympic Games were long over, and the Nazi government was increasingly direct in its anti-Semitism. So the assassination of Ernst von Rath became the justification for mass violence, sanctioned by Adolf Hitler and coordinated by Nazi officials. We should stress, Herschel Grinspan's killing of Ernst von Rath did not cause Kristallnacht. It simply gave the Nazi government a convenient rationale to carry it out. Reinhard Heydrich, chief lieutenant of the SS, called for demonstrations against the Jewish population on November 9th. At the commemoration of the Beer Hall Putsch on the 9th, Reich Minister of Propaganda Paul Joseph Goebbels carefully planted the idea of a purportedly spontaneous uprising. He framed it this way, quote, The Fuhrer has decided that demonstrations should not be prepared or organized by the party, but insofar as they erupt spontaneously, they are not to be hampered. Just before midnight on the 9th, Gestapo chief Heinrich Mueller sent this telegram, quote, In shortest order, actions against Jews and especially their synagogues will take place in all of Germany. These are not to be interfered with. So this idea that purportedly spontaneous demonstrations might just happen and that officials shouldn't interfere with them if they did happen was totally fabricated. Nazi officials were directly involved in planning this and carrying it out. Party leaders called or went back to their local offices that night, and they called for this demonstration. Although civilians were involved, including a large number of schoolboys, the SS and the SA, which was also known as the Stormtroopers, were major instigators. So were the Gestapo and the Hitler Youth. Although some people remained in their uniforms, a lot of them changed into civilian clothes to reinforce this idea that this was a spontaneous civilian uprising that was just being carried out by local residents, not a coordinated attack by the Nazi government. The violence started in Germany, then spread into Austria as well as Sudetenland, which Germany had recently annexed from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There were attacks in parts of East Prussia near the Reich border as well. Instructions were to destroy Jewish property while leaving everything else untouched. Synagogues were to be destroyed with their archives confiscated beforehand. As many young, healthy Jewish men as possible were to be arrested as long as they weren't foreigners. Foreigners weren't supposed to be harmed, even if they were Jewish, to avoid prompting a response from their home country. Any fires that started were supposed to be allowed to burn unless they threatened to spread to buildings that weren't owned by Jews. At about 1.20 a.m. on the 10th, Reinhard Heydrich sent telegrams forbidding looting. But by that point, looting was well underway, and his direction was mostly ignored. Most of the violence took place on November 9th and 10th. 
Goebbels called for an end to the violence on the 10th, although there were scattered incidents after that. During that time, more than 1,000 synagogues were damaged and at least 267 were completely destroyed. More than 7,000 Jewish businesses and homes were vandalized and many of them were also looted. Jewish cemeteries were desecrated, at least 91 Jews were killed, and an unknown number were humiliated, beaten, sexually assaulted, and raped. 30,000 people, most of them young Jewish men, were arrested and deported to concentration camps, including Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhausen. This represented about a third of the Jewish men still in Germany. Most of them were held for about three months, but ultimately released only if they agreed to leave Germany immediately. Although support for this pogrom wasn't universal among the government, it was overwhelming. A very few officials returned to their local offices and either refused to participate or issued counter-orders. In a few towns, parish priests and mayors managed to mostly prevent the violence. But aside from these isolated exceptions, every Jewish community in the Reich was affected. The public response of Nazi Party leadership after Kristallnacht was shock. After all, this was a supposedly spontaneous wave of righteous indignation. At the same time, they didn't present this as a problem. Hitler and Goebbels held a press conference on November 11th, and Goebbels told reporters, quote, It is an intolerable state of affairs that within our borders and for all these years, hundreds of thousands of Jews still control whole streets of shops, populate our recreation spots, and, as foreign apartment owners, pocket the money of German tenants, while their racial comrades abroad agitate for war against Germany and gun down German officials. Up till this point, the Nazi policy of Aryanization was largely framed as voluntary. Jews were being, quote, encouraged to sell their homes and businesses to non-Jews. But this encouragement was rooted in harassment, discrimination, and persecution. There wasn't much of an actual choice about it. But after Kristallnacht, this shifted from a plan that was supposedly voluntary to one that was definitely forced. On November 12th, the German government issued a decree on the elimination of the Jews from economic life. And this forbade Jews from owning or managing businesses, working as foremen or managers, working as craftspeople, taking part in trade, selling goods, basically every possible way of earning a living. Jewish-owned businesses were confiscated and turned over to non-Jews. Even more laws targeting Jews were passed immediately after Kristallnacht, including bans on possessing weapons, shopping in most stores, and using most public facilities like theaters. Also on the 12th, Hermann Göring announced that the Jewish community was going to be fined for all the destruction. That fine was set at 1 billion Reichmarks and called an atonement tax. He also announced that any insurance settlements for the damage would be property of the state, not of the people whose property had actually been destroyed. Property that wasn't destroyed was also confiscated. The international response in the first days after this happened was overall one of shock and horror. Because World War II had not started yet in Europe, there were still a lot of international reporters in German territory, and they were largely able to move around and report relatively freely, So Kristallnacht was widely and critically reported in the international press. For example, in the United States, it got more news coverage than any other single anti-Jewish incident or policy during the Nazi era. 
But in spite of the horror and outrage, the international community did essentially nothing to help or to protect Jews in Germany and German-occupied territory. Nations that had reached their quotas for immigrants and asylum seekers overwhelmingly left those quotas unchanged. Several nations introduced proposals to raise their quotas, but those proposals failed. Just as an example of what happened on the national level, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain set a limit of 500 refugees per week to Britain, but it refused to allow refugees from Germany into the Palestinian territories, which were at that point under British control. The kinder transport program that we discussed in a recent Six Impossible episodes was only very reluctantly approved after extensive lobbying. In the United States, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt recalled the American ambassador from Berlin as an act of protest, and he publicly denounced the attack. But he didn't allow more Jewish refugees into the United States. Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins did convince him to allow about 12,000 Germans who were in the U.S. at the time, most of whom were Jewish, to stay indefinitely, even after their visas expired. A bill introduced to Congress to allow children under the age of 14 to enter the U.S., which would have been similar to kinder transport, was not passed. As had been true before Kristallnacht, there continued to be individual diplomats and organizations that tried to find asylum for Jews in German territory. Several Indian princely states also offered asylum, but overall, nations still refused to act, and the people who did manage to escape from German territory generally faced anti-Semitism wherever they went. As many Jews fled Germany in 1938 and 39, as had between 1933 and 1938, but this was a tiny, tiny fraction of people who tried to escape. The general refusal to act came from a lot of social and economic factors and anti-Semitism, which wasn't at all unique to Germany or its Nazi government. In the United States, for example, 20,000 members of the pro-Nazi German-American Bund held an anti-Semitic Americanization rally in Madison Square Garden on February 20th, 1939, just months after Kristallnacht. Persecution of Jews continued to increase in Germany and German-occupied territory from this point. And from there, it starts to merge into the general history of the Holocaust. On November 23, 1938, the Los Angeles Examiner read the headline, quote, Nazis warn world Jews will be wiped out unless evacuated by democracies. Over the next few years, Germany invaded Poland, established ghettos and death camps, and planned the final solution of the genocide of Europe's Jewish population, along with targeting gay men, Romani, disabled people, Freemasons, and others. Two waves of investigations followed Kristallnacht. One carried out by the Nazi party immediately afterward, and the other by the German government after the end of World War II. And we are going to talk about those after we first pause for another sponsor break. Shortly after Kristallnacht, the Nazi party launched investigations into the rapes and murders that had been committed on November 9th and 10th. But neither of these were motivated by seeking justice for the victims. One motivation was trying to keep the investigation out of the German state court. That was the primary reason for the murder investigations. The Nazi government didn't really care about the murders, especially because the victims were Jews. But officials knew that investigations and trials carried out by the regular German police and courts would unearth the fact that this was a planned and coordinated attack of mass violence 
not a spontaneous civilian uprising. The rape investigations had another layer. They were ordered because the rapes were a violation of the idea of racial purity that was central to the Nazi ideology. In addition to the racial purity standards in the Nuremberg Laws, the Nazi Party had policies about the racial purity of its members. The Supreme Party Court had banned anyone who had a trace of, quote, colored or Jewish blood from the party, with that trace going back to their family tree to 1800. And anyone who was married to anyone who had a trace of such blood was also banned from the party. So the men who had committed rape during the pogrom had violated this decree. Mass trials began on December 20th of 1938, and they ran through February 9th of 1939. The Gestapo was responsible for providing evidence, and jurors were selected from the SS and the SA, along with some members of the Nazi party. But most of the trials led to acquittals. A lot of those who were convicted of rape had a previous history of some kind of involvement with a Jewish woman, Although a few men were sent to prison, most of the sentences that were handed down were either a warning or ejection from the Nazi party. The second round of trials took place after the end of World War II, most of them between 1946 and 1950. These were separate from the more well-known Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials were focused on high-ranking officials and military leaders, but almost none of the leaders that we've named in this episode were put on trial. Adolf Hitler took his own life on April 30th, 1945. Joseph Goebbels did the same on the following day, along with his wife, after poisoning their children. SS Chief Reinhard Heydrich, who was also the architect of the Final Solution, was assassinated in 1942. It is unknown what happened to Gestapo Chief Heinrich Müller. Of the leaders we've mentioned today, only Hermann Goering was tried at Nuremberg and sentenced to death by hanging, but he took his own life before being executed. The second wave of trials related to Kristallnacht took place on a much smaller scale. They were the result of individual victims bringing charges against the perpetrators of specific crimes. So this was a collection of individual court cases that were related to individual incidents, not a large-scale investigation into Kristallnacht as a whole. And it involved only victims who had survived the Holocaust and had the means and ability and, frankly, the desire to pursue this matter in court. These post-war trials were also hampered by the fact that Germany had a tremendous shortage of people at every level of the judicial system after the war. The overwhelming majority of judges had Nazi ties. And at first, the Allies were trying to rebuild the German judicial system without Nazi influence. And this involved convincing judges who had retired before 1933 to return to the bench, as well as appointing new judges. But even with those steps, there just weren't enough people without Nazi ties to fill all the necessary positions. And it wasn't until the 1960s that the proportion of judges with Nazi ties really started to drop. All that together means that most of the perpetrators of Kristallnacht were never brought to justice in any way. And we're going to close out this episode by returning to Herschel Grinspan. As we said earlier, after shooting Ernst von Rath, he was taken into custody by French authorities, and he went with them willingly. An investigation was conducted in Paris with the presiding judge, one who often dealt with juvenile delinquency cases. But his case never came to trial. German operatives were dispatched to Paris to try to influence the proceedings, while Jewish and philanthropic organizations came together in his defense— 
He remained in prison until Germany invaded France in May of 1940, and then he was transferred into German custody on July 18th of 1940. The Nazi government planned to put him on trial, a massive public show trial that would work as dramatic anti-Semitic propaganda. But this plan ultimately crumbled, in part because of the actions of Herschel himself. While Herschel was still in France, one of his attorneys had latched onto rumors that Von Rat was homosexual, and he tried to use those rumors to build a defense, framing this shooting as the result of a lover's quarrel, in their words. But Herschel refused to accept this defense, insisting repeatedly that it was not true at all and that his actions were politically motivated. He said it was, quote, because of love for my parents and for my people who were subjected unjustly to outrageous treatment. It is not, after all, a crime to be Jewish. I am not a dog. I have the right to live. My people have a right to exist on this earth. But in 1942, after the German Foreign Ministry, Ministry of Propaganda, and Ministry of Justice all started working together to plan this huge show trial, Grinspan finally agreed to the proposed defense. There is a bit of conjecture here, but it is highly likely that he did this specifically to prevent the trial from happening, because it would have had disastrous effects on the Jewish community, which was already facing the Holocaust. Homosexuality was abhorrent to the Nazi party, as, as we said earlier, was sexual contact between Jews and non-Jews. So this defense also brought in the fact that Grinspan had only been 17 at the time of the assassination, while Vom Rat was nearly 30, which would have made him an alleged pederast. The political assassination of a German official at the hands of a Jew was something that the Nazi government could turn to its advantage— but homosexual involvement between a German official and a minor Jew absolutely was not. Grinspan accepted this defense at great risk to his own life. He had only been kept alive and been treated relatively well for the sake of using his trial as a public spectacle. And after the trial was called off in the spring of 1942, he disappeared from the historical record. Although there were rumors that he survived until the end of the war in 1945 and was rescued by the Allies, it's overwhelmingly likely that Herschel Grinspan was killed in a concentration camp before that point. In 1958, his father petitioned for reparations, and after an investigation, a death certificate was issued for Herschel Grinspan on June 1st of 1960. Uh, So that is a heavy one. I feel almost irreverent asking about listener mail. I did prepare some listener mail, and I wanted to pick something that was not too heavy based on the heaviness of this episode, but also not too frivolous since I don't want to feel like we're making light of it. And I got an email from Dave that's about our episode on Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, and it is titled Raleigh Cobham and the Hearsay Rule. And Dave wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I loved the recent episode on Sir Walter Raleigh, especially the story of his trial. One really interesting point that you didn't really get to stands out from my evidence class in law school. It's one of the inspirations for the hearsay rule, famous from any legal TV show you've ever seen. Long story short, hearsay is the rule that any statement made out of court can't be admitted into evidence to prove that it's true. Holly can say, history stuff is the best podcast ever, but that can't be admitted to prove that history stuff is the best podcast ever unless she showed up in court to say it under oath. I like how I'm the one causing the trouble in this letter. (laughs) Holly, you're always the one causing the trouble. That's That's probably true. true. (laughs) We disagree on whether that's true. 
At Raleigh's trial, the only evidence against him was Cobham's confession, and Cobham never appeared to testify. Our evidence professor loved to give a dramatic reading from the trial transcript where Raleigh states, All this is but one accusation of Cobham's. I beseech you, my lords, let Cobham be sent for. Charge him on his soul, on his allegiance to the king. If he affirm it, I am guilty. Love the podcast. Keep up the awesome work, Dave. Uh, then he gives some episode suggestions, but he didn't actually give episode suggestions, which kind of delights me. So, uh, thank you so much for sending this email. Um, that is a fascinating story about hearsay in Sir Walter Raleigh, and it led me to go down the the rabbit hole of where the hearsay rule came from um, this morning before we recorded. And one of the things that I learned is that um, Walter Raleigh's trial happened as opinions were shifting about this. It was sort of in the mid-1500s that in court people started bringing up the idea that maybe hearsay evidence was was not okay. Maybe that person should actually be there to speak for themselves. And it continued to come up more and more in the 1600s. And then by the late 1600s and early 1700s, it becomes more uh, standard that hearsay evidence is inadmissible, that maybe a sworn testimony that was given under oath outside of the court is admissible. Um, but yeah, he was sort of part of that arc of how those rules evolved. So thank you so much, Dave, for sending that note. If you would like to write to us about this or any of our po- other podcasts, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes for this episode and the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together, as well as a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can listen to and subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you like to listen to podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 